Good evening, everyone. Let's start with a smile check on this side. Smiling, smiling. Yes, yes, praise the Lord. Going, oh, 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 Haslandi, smiling. Yes, all right. I see you. All right, just making sure. Praise God. I'm so happy that you're here this evening as we're going to begin our study. And hopefully you enjoyed the Sabbath. Those of you who were able to experience the Sabbath from sunset last night to sunset now, just 24 hours of no work. 24 hours of no worries about bills. Huh? 24 hours in this sacred time where we had to be alone with Jesus. You know, I, I, you know, you get to preach and you get to hang out with people, but there's that time when I say I got to get away. You ever have that time? And I got away. I got away for at least an hour, two hours, just praying and talking to God, just in communion and in fellowship with the Most High. And we need that. We need that. Else we'll go crazy. I'll just tell you that from now. We will go absolutely bananas if we did not have that sweet fellowship with God. Before we begin this evening, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. I'm going to kneel. If you want to kneel, that's fine. I'm going to pray and ask God's presence to be with us. Our Father in heaven, every time I say that, Lord, it's a wonderful privilege. Lord, we have come again. Our spiritual muscles are being exercised. And we have come because we want more of you and more of your word. We don't want to be tantalized or fanaticized. We just want you, Father. So as we open the Bible, we do ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, claiming the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. I want you to start with opening your Bibles to the book of John, to the book of John, John the sixth chapter, John the sixth chapter, and we're going to start reading verse number one, John the sixth chapter, and we're going to begin reading at verse number one. When you have it, just say amen. In John chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible begins, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now again, I always find the questions of God interesting. Jesus is not asking because he doesn't know what he's about to do. He's asking because he wants to highlight to his disciple something special is about to take place. Notice what else it says. And this he said to prove him. To do what, my friends? 
to prove him. The other day, I, I did a test on my daughter. We do homeschool, and she doesn't always know what test I'm going to do. But this test, we have these apple trees in our yard. Nice apple trees. Some of them look crooked. Some of them are weird. But we have nice apple trees there. And I told my daughter, Naija, I want you to go outside, and I want you to gather for me apples. You have to get 25 of them. If you don't get 25, you can't come back in the house. Now, you have to understand, my daughter is a bookworm. She loves reading books. She loves being inside. Being outside is, she likes that too, but she'd rather be inside listening to stories or reading books. So I challenged her, go outside and get some apples. I did this because I knew what she would do anyway. So she took her bucket outside. I watched her. She doesn't mind me telling the story. I watched her for 20 minutes. And she's outside with her bucket, swinging the bucket. Swinging the bucket, looking at the trees from a distance, swinging the bucket, swinging the bucket. And I'm just looking at my daughter like, Lord, look at that little girl. That's my little sweetheart right there. Not picking an apple. She looked at the apple. They looked messed up. They looked a little, some of them looked funny. Some of them have worms in them. She's just swinging the bucket, looking at the worms and the, and the apples. Not picking any apples. After a few moments of investigating the apples from a distance, she begins to make her journey back to the house. And I see her coming. And I make a proclamation from my office at the top. Dear child, thou cannot comest in here till thou hast gathered 25 apples. Go yonder. <laughs> so she goes back out. And I know that at this point I must go with her. Pay attention to what I'm saying. I know at this point I must go with her. Because in her mind, she's already set a block that there's no way that she can get to these apples. There are no good apples out here. There's high bush here. How am I going to get these apples? So I go outside, and I intentionally go out with flip-flops on and a T-shirt. Because in, you know, New Hampshire in the country, we have this fear of ticks. So I go out just to show her, Daddy's here, baby. Let's go get some apples. So we go and we start looking at the apples. I said, sweetheart, what about this apple? It's right here. And what about this apple? And we started plucking these apples, plucking these apples. We were having a great time. And we were plucking these apples. There were so many apples that she didn't see. I was amazed. And so we picked these apples. And then we filled the bucket. And one last test. I said, I'm going to take this bucket over here. And you need to pick 10 apples for me. And you can't come in until you get them. Now this time, watch this. Because I went with her to pick the apples, when we said to get 10, she got 10 apples in less than two minutes. Y'all not hearing nothing I said. She got 10 apples in less than two minutes, but what made the difference? My presence. She saw what I did, and she followed what I did. Are you following what I'm saying? So Jesus is there with all these people. He turns to his disciples and says, how are we going to feed all these people? This was a test. Jesus knew what he was about to do. And notice what the Bible says. He said this to prove him, verse 6, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, there is a lad here which have five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? 
Now, those of you who were here this morning, remember the woman who had this great debt? Remember that woman? All she had with what was in her possession was that pot of oil. She went and gathered these extra pots from her friends. And as she's pouring out the oil into the pot, she never ran out of that which was necessary. Did you follow that story? So when you have something little in your hand, if you are a believer in the Most High, it's more than enough. It's more than enough, my friends, especially if you're in his presence. There is a lad which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about how many, my friends? 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fish as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be, what's it say? Now, this story, my friends, is so significant to what we're going to delve into tonight. So here is Jesus. He's breaking bread. I wish I was there to see it. He's breaking bread, giving it to the disciples, right? Handing it out. And they keep coming back, and there's still more bread. I can imagine the disciples' jaw just dropping to the ground. Taking the fish. Now, why is he able to do this? Tell me why he's able to do this. What, what is his, why, why is he able to m- multiply fish like this? What is his power? He's the creator. He is life himself. He has no problem doing for them for what they don't have themselves. In fact, this reminds me of of, of something special about the creator. Every time the creator is in a place and the people are willing to receive him, people cannot help but be blessed. He walks into a room. You're sick. If he's there, you're healed except for in his own town where they didn't believe. I'm talking about being in the presence of the Most High. Now, this story is a symbol of something even more supernatural that's about to happen or should be happening in the experience of the believers. And as we go there, I want you to look in the book of Revelation, and I'm going to give you an outline before we get there. So this is an outline of the book of Revelation in its great simplicity. The book of Revelation is of what we call a chiastic structure. It's broken down in a chiastic structure. So Revelation chapter 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 to 22 essentially are covering similar concepts and ideas. In Revelation 1 through 3, it talks about how God has delivered his people throughout the ages. In Revelation 20 to 22, it talks about how God will deliver his people from evil in the last days. This is a general framework of the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 through 7 talks about how God judges evil throughout the centuries. And Revelation 17 through 19 talks about how God judges evil in the last days. So you have this mirror in the book of Revelation. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 8 through 11, it talks about how God executed judgment for his people. And then Revelation 13 through 16 talks about how God will execute judgment for his people. 
And ultimately, Revelation chapter 12 highlights, if you will, the apex of the great controversy, the controversy between Christ and uh, Satan. This is an oversimplified overview of the book of Revelation. But if you have this context in your mind, everything else finds its place. But let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 and beginning at verse number 1. Now, the book of Revelation is a revelation, not a hiding. It's to make revealed, it's to make open your understanding of the person and the character of God. So in Revelation chapter 1, notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant. Who, my friends? John. So God gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the angel. The angel gives it to who? To John. Now watch. Who bear record, what is he bearing record of? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Bears record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now it's important to understand these two key points. I want to show you something in the book of Revelation that you may not have seen before. You see, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ are something that the devil hates with great anger. In fact, look at verse number 9. In Revelation chapter 1, verse number 9, it says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for what? testimony of Jesus. So John, the revelator, is teaching and preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And these people, the Romans and those others surrounding his time said, I don't like John. And they tried to boil him in oil. You guys know that, right? History tells us that they put John in a pot of boiling oil and he would not burn. So it said, well, since he can't burn, let's hide him. So they took him and they put him on the Isle of Patmos, and the Bible says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and God gives him this revelation of Jesus, but he's there because he's testifying in regards to Jesus and the word of God. But let's go a tad bit further. I want to show you something else. Go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, in verse number 9. Actually, it's Revelation chapter 6. I didn't want to. It's Revelation 6, verse number 9. Revelation 6, verse 9, the Bible says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for what? The word of God and what else? The testimony which they held. Do you see this hatred that's there? John is put in the out of Patmos because he has the word of God and the testimony. And now we see all these people that have been slain because they have the word of God and they have the testimony. Let's go a little further. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 12. And I want you to see verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Notice what the Bible says. 
And the dragon was, what's the word? Wroth. Wroth means angry. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the what? Testimony. So do you see it again? The devil is upset at those who hold to the word of God and those who have the testimony of Jesus. Go with me again now, Revelation chapter 14. Look at verse number 12. We're looking at a pattern. Revelation 14, in verse number 12, the Bible says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that, what's to say? Keep the commandments of God and have the the faith of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony are clearly designed by God to give instruction and to be the message that God's people proclaim in the last days. And those who have these two elements are clearly the enemy of Satan. Do you guys see that? Now listen, there are some who want to be Christians and live an easy life. I mean, that's what they want to do. They want to be Christians. I accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, and I just want my life to be easy. That's not what we're about. You see, when you accept Christianity, at least if you were just to take your mind back to the time when there were these persons that lived in the mountains, they were called Waldensians. Anybody know about the Waldensians? And the Waldensians lived in the mountains because they were persecuted because they had the Bible in their own tongue. And they would literally, in the mountains, while they were in the, in the mountains, they would have their children and themselves write out the Bible and then take the, the writings of the Bible and sew them into the clothing of their garments. And then when they went to do missionary work, because if you had a Bible, you, had, you would get, you know, persecuted. When they went to do missionary work, they would have their, their word in their coat. And when they found an open soul that was willing to hear the truth, they would take that piece of garment out. And under, under candlelight, they would copy that portion of Scripture. Y'all not hear what I'm saying? I'm talking about Christianity that was willing to suffer for what they say they believe. See, the Christianity of the day is that air-conditioned Christianity. It's an easy religion. But God's not looking for that in these last days. He's looking for people that really love him no matter what who are willing to be persecuted and prosecuted no matter what because they understand and that they have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Are you hearing what I'm saying, friends? So here it is. The enemy is angry. He's upset at those who have these two key points. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, go back to Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you something here. There is a blessing, particularly on those who read the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, and we're looking now at verse number 4. Revelation chapter 1, and look at verse number 3, I'm sorry, Revelation 1 verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. It says, blessed is he that what? Readeth and what? They that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So notice The blessing is on those that read, those that hear, and those that what? Now, if you just hear, you can't keep. If you just read, you're not really hearing. You have to do all three in order to receive the blessing. Does that make sense? So you must read, you must hear, and you must keep 
what the book reveals. Now, Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 says, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, there's something else about the Revelation chapter 1 I want you to look at. Now, jump down to verse number 11. Verse number 11. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and in verse number 11, it says, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto what? Laodicea. Now, the description that we're going to give is important. I'm going to give you the descriptions of Christ as they are in the book of Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to lay that description out, and I'm going to lay before you the implications of what we see. In verse number 12, it says, I turned to see the voice of him that spake, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, my friends, by the time this is over, you will understand the candlesticks like you have never understood them before. I'm telling you, this is science that I'm about to give. It says, verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto who, my friends? Son of man, clothed with a garment down to his foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as it were the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and I laid and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So I'm going to pause for a moment. I just want you to see the, the visual concept here. Here is Jesus standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. His presence is in the midst of of his church. Now, how do I know this is a church? Look at verse number 20. Verse 20 says, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the what? Seven churches. So Jesus is in the midst of his church. Now, tell me something. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. He's a beautiful caretaker. He's in the midst of his church. Now, I want to ask you a question. And I just want you to use your sanctified imagination because sometimes we don't use it, and that's why we end up doing what we do. When you go home tonight, if you were to imagine with your sanctified imagination that Jesus went home with you, what would you do different? I mean, just use your sanctified imagination. You, you're leaving the church, you get in your car, you normally would go home and click on whatever you're going to click on. You normally go home and eat whatever you're going to eat. If Jesus went home with you in the car and he travels there, he walks into your house, what would you do? 
Do you know we have the privilege of having him every moment of every day? Every moment of every day. Oh, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That's, that's talking about being in his presence. Fellowship. And let me tell you something. The devil is afraid of you having that type of fellowship. He realizes that if you have unbroken fellowship, unbroken communion with the Most High, there is not one temptation, there is not one sin that the devil can come in and pull you. He can just drag you to that sin. He don't have that power. But fellowship, unbroken communion, this is what's being described here in his church. And Jesus is trying to fix his church in great detail. But I just wanted you to see that he's in the midst There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven candlesticks there. Now, here are the descriptions. I just put this here. Whenever I study, I kind of just lay all the information out there so I can just see it. What we discovered in Revelation 1 is that he's in the midst of the candlesticks. He's in the midst of his church. We saw that he's called the Son of Man here, indicating his special connection with humanity. He's no longer just God all by himself. He's God-connected with us. We see here, he's clothed with a garment down to the foot. He's clothed in righteousness. He has this girdle about his paps, a golden girdle that keeps everything together. His hair is white like wool. Now tell me something. Those of you who have white hair, tell me what is the importance of your hair? That's right. Claim that right there. Don't be ashamed. I got a few whiskers developing. A few whiskers of wisdom, huh? So his hair is white like snow. This is an indication of his wisdom. It goes on to say his eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning that he can see, and when he sees, he sees through everything. There's a, he can't hide from him, you know what I mean? There's nothing that's hid from his searching eyes. He has feet like fine brass if they burn in a furnace. It indicates the reason why his feet, it talks about where he is trod, where he's gone. And he's gone to the furnace. In other words, he's gone to the place where he's made a sacrifice for you. Willingly, my friends. His voice is like the sound of many waters. You're going to learn later that in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, sound of waters is the sound of the people. So Jesus is the voice of the people. Y'all not hearing what I'm saying? He speaks for us. He has seven stars in his right hand. Those seven stars are seven angels. These are, according to the Bible, messengers or preachers to the churches. In other words, the Lord God has his ministry in his hand. Amen? Not in no man's hand. It's in God's hands. His sharp, his sharp sword with two edges is it's the word of God that comes out of his mouth. It cuts both ways. Cuts both ways. His countenance shone as the sun. Tell me, how many of you guys have stared into the sun recently? You don't want to do that. Today, I, I did turn my, turn my face towards the sun, but I had my eyes closed because I, I wanted that energy, that heat to kind of purify you know, the eye problem I was having. <laughs> so his face is like the sun. There's strength and there's beauty in his face. He's the first and the last. What does that mean, he's the first and the last? Yeah, he, he's, he's that which started you, 
and when you're done, he'll still be there. He's the author and he's the finisher. Are you following the idea? These are all descriptions of Jesus just in Revelation chapter 1. It says he, wa- he liveth and was dead and he's alive how often? I mean, he's the conqueror of death. Death can't hold him. Death can't hold him, my friends. He, this is Jesus that we're talking about. And then it says this, he has the keys of hell and of death. So he gets to unlock the grave. I tell you the truth, that's good news, amen? amen. He gets to unlock the grave. If, if you've died in Jesus, he says, come forth and come hither. This is Jesus that we're talking about in Revelation chapter 1. Again, I'm laying this out because there's something more deeper that I want to share with you. So as he stands in the midst of these seven churches, these churches have names. I'm going to give them to you. The church of Ephesus simply means first or desirable. That's what Ephesus means. The church of Smyrna means bitter, bitter. The church of Pergamos means or has this idea of earthly elevation. And in fact, if, you were, if we were to do a whole study in these seven churches in deeper detail, I would go into that. This one here, Diatira, means sweet perfume of sacrifice. Sardis means remnant, that which, wa- which remains. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And lastly, Laodicea means a people judge. Each name has its significance. It plays its part. But there's something deeper I want to go here with you. Oh, you're taking pictures. Let me leave it up there for you. You're taking, this is the new age of taking notes, huh? <laughs> just, uh, just hold it for, boom, it's done. I, I hear you, sis, I hear you. All right, so we've done that. Now, I want to take you somewhere else. So Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven churches. Let's put the names on these churches. There's one, two, three, four, five, again, six, seven churches here. Now, I want to go to Revelation 4. Let's, let's go to Revelation 4 now. I'm taking you through a little survey. Remember, tonight's topic is in his presence, okay? In his presence. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible starts out by saying this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must shortly be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one set on the throne, and he that set was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone, or sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto, what's it say, my friends? So I I just looked up for what these... These sardine and jasper, these are different colors that it could be, right? Ultimately, emerald is the color green. So you have, these, you have these beautiful colors that are around the throne in the very presence of God. And then it says this. It says, and round about the throne were four and twenty elders. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, And they had on their heads crowns of, what's it say, my friends? Gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, tonight I am literally taking my time, unlike other nights, 
So what did it say were the seven spirits of God? What was it? The seven lamps, right? Seven lamps equals seven spirits of God. Now, when I read that, and also, let me put this. We said seven candlesticks were the seven churches. All right? So when I read this, I, I, initially I was confused. Because I was like, well, how could you have seven lamps and seven candlesticks and they be, they're different? Are they the same? Or what is, what's happening here? So this is my brain's processing. So I'm just letting you be processing with me. So there's seven lamps around the throne. There are 24 elders in this perfect square, if you will, around the throne of God. This throne is beautiful, has sardine and jasper, and there's an emerald light emitted from the throne of God, from his very presence. This picture doesn't do it justice. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Let's go a little bit further. It says in verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Well, that's interesting. Verse 7, And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast was like a calf, and the, th- and the third beast and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Well, okay. So let's look at the picture again. An emerald, sardine stone, 24 elders. You have beasts with eyes all around their head. I don't know if I like that look. It reminds me of an insect, you know, like in my mind as I'm thinking about it. However, there's a reason why that imagery is used. I want to talk, talk to you for a moment about the number 24. See this number? In 1 Chronicles 23 through 26, 24 is an organizational number for the temple. Okay, that's a, it's an organizational number. There are 24,000 Levites that work in the temple according to 1 Chronicles 23 verse 4. There are 24 men or officers of the sanctuary according to 1 Chronicles 24 verse 5. 24 chosen by lot to do Levitical duties, according to 1 Chronicles 24.31. There are 24 musicians, according to 1 Chronicles 25.9 through 31. You can read all their names. Actually, there's a whole list of the names of these people. And then there are 24 gatekeepers. And now everybody has their duty and their round and their responsibility. I just thought it was interesting that the Old Testament highlights that there are 24. And there are 24 persons, you'll see there, the chosen lot to do the Levitical duties. And then there's one high priest. That makes how many? 25. Very interesting number. Now, again, I'm laying this before you because we're talking about being in the presence of the Most High. And then we had these, these pictures. We had the, the four beasts. Now, these four beasts had four different faces. One had the face of a man. One had the face of an eagle. One had the face of an ox. The other had the face of a lion. Each one indicating the different strengths and characteristics of the Most High. That's what they represent. So the lion being courageous and the king of the jungle and the ox being the, the creature of strength and the, the man being the face of wisdom and the eagle having these pure... You know how good an eagle is in sea? 
I mean, they are hundreds of feet in the air, and they can see a little rabbit and just go. Shoo. Amazing what the eyes of the eagle can see. Each characteristic representing a characteristic of God. But I thought it was interesting, too, with these, this organization, these 24 elders are bowing before him, and they cast their crowns at the feet of the Most High. Man, I, there's a song that Niaja and I were, were singing the other day. Was it you? Were you with me? I can only imagine. Anybody know that song? Anybody heard that song before? Some, I start crying sometimes when I, when I hear that song. I just want to be there. Don't you want? I just want to be there. I mean, I, you guys can argue about theology all you want. I want to. I just want to be in His presence. I just want to be there. So these these privileged ones are there before the Most High, in His presence, casting their crowns before Him. And I thought, when as I was going through this, this, this imagery connects with these Old Testament sanctuary tabernacle, which we're going to go into great detail at another time. But I, I wanted to point out to you the organization of the camp. Now, the camp was in perfect order. Like, there was nothing out of order in this camp. Everybody had their standards. They knew exactly where they were supposed to be. They, they marched in a particular order. There were no mistakes in the system that they had. But I want you to see something here. There is standards. Now, there are 12 standards or banners, if you will. And I don't know if you can read that, so let me see if I can go to my magnifying glass. See that there? So this banner has an eagle as a representative on that banner. You see that? That's the tribe of Dan. You see over here, Ephraim has an ox on its banner. Reuben has a man's face on his banner. And Judah has a lion on his banner. You guys see that? So in, in the organization of the camp itself, it reflected the throne room of God. Y'all get that? And just like they had 24 elders to work in the sanctuary, so they have 24 elders working in the sanctuary above. Are you following the pattern? Now, the reason why I'm showing you the pattern, because there's an actual practical application to us as a people. Go a little bit further. So, again, these are different tribes. They, they have their exact order. Reuben, uh, Judah, Dan. Usually the, the, those tribes are actually in the middle. Uh, and you see the, the amount of people that are in each tribe the, the, in, this, in this picture. And I thought this was interesting. I just put this up here for information purposes. These are all the stones that were represented by each tribe. Remember, I showed you probably the second night, second or third night, we talked about Lucifer, and he had these nine stones. And then here, these three stones are actually missing off of Lucifer's uh, off of his body. But it's, very, it's just an interesting tidbit of information. Now again, these are the, the tribes organized by their stones, organized by their stones. Notice this. This candlestick. Now, this is where we're going to start thinking deeply. Seven lamps. I want you to go with me to the book of Zechariah for a moment. Zechariah. 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 
Zechariah chapter 4, and we're going to observe. Remember the question I put on the screen, on the board over here, seven lamps, seven candlesticks, seven spirits, seven churches. So Zechariah chapter 4, the Bible starts out, and, and again, it's okay if we study. Is that okay? All right. So Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is waked out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. So then I said, oh, I, I get it now. I didn't understand that there are candlesticks. Whoops, I didn't want to do that. The candlesticks are here. Let me turn to this. You see this? These are the candlesticks. At the top, you see these bowls are the lamps. You guys see that? Okay. These are the candlesticks, and at the top of them, these are the lamps. So now my brain says, oh, I get it. Seven candlesticks are the churches, and the lamps that sit on top are the seven spirits. Are you following? All right. Stay with me. So I, I'm, I'm processing in my mind, and then it says this. It says, Verse number two, and the two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto him, Knowest not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by, what's it say? Might, nor by what? Power, but by my what? Okay, so now this becomes a symbol of what the Spirit is going to do. Now, remember I told you that there are seven spirits? You guys remember that? Okay, I hope you're ready to study. I hope you're not already on vacation right now. Isaiah, go with me to the book of Isaiah. And you're going to help me here. Isaiah chapter 1, I mean chapter 11. We're looking at verse 1. All right. Isaiah chapter 11. We're starting at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, does it say spirits or does it say spirit? Spirit, singular, is that right? So watch what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of, what's it say? Wisdom and what? All right, let's mark it down. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. What's the next one? Spirit of what? Counsel and what else? Might, okay. And what's the next one? Knowledge. Fear of the Lord. How many is that, my friends? Okay, wisdom is one. Understanding is two. Counsel is three. Might is four. Knowledge is five. Fear of the Lord is what? Six. So we have six, but there's something more. Let's keep reading. It says, 
It says, and he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. First and foremost, before I, we're going through these seven spirits, who is this resting upon? Who is this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Now, mind you, my friends, when I began to read this and I began to see this, I began to, to, to process in my mind, when you see Jesus operating, when you see him moving, when you see him amongst the people, you're seeing wisdom. You're seeing understanding. You're seeing counsel. You're, see, you're seeing how the Spirit is to work in the person who gives themselves to God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And that's why many nights I've said to you, when the Spirit comes upon us, it's not supposed to make you jump up and down and do twists and stand on top of your head and speak in gibberish. That's not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to make you a reflection of the Most High. That's the work of the Spirit. But we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're still missing one of the seven. It's right here in Isaiah chapter 11. You may have missed it. I'm going to throw it at you. You don't have to believe me. And then I'm going to show you again from another passage. It says right there in verse number three, it says, and he shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not, what's it say? He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he what? So number seven, believe it or not, is judgment. Number seven is judgment. Now I'm going to show you something else. Go to uh, Isaiah chapter four. Look at verse number four. Isaiah four and verse number four. Watch what the Bible says. It says, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of, what's it say? Spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. So again, burning, the idea of burning eyes is to be able to judge, to be able to see, to be able to purify. So here's the idea. There are seven spirits. In fact, I put it on the screen here. Let me put it on the screen. Did I put my pocket? Yes, yes, yes. Here it is. Seven lamps, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear or the fear of the Lord, and lastly, judgment. Now, it's interesting, if you lay it out the way the Hebrew mind thinks, the, the, the chiastic structure, that, that, that system that I was showing you earlier, the key component is judgment. I'm going to show you something else. These are the seven eyes or the seven lamps, seven candlesticks. Now, why seven candlesticks? Remember, we named them. The candlesticks have names. What are the names? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and what's the last one, my friends? Now, there's a threat given in, the, in one of these. It's like, if you don't do right, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. The candlestick is not the light. Jesus is. The candlestick, we are simply conduits. 
by which God can now flow, his spirit can flow through us, and now we get to reflect the beautiful essence of what God is all about. Does everybody make sense of that? Now stay with me now. Stay with me. I'm building very, very, very slowly. Building slowly. So in Revelation chapter 5, go to Revelation chapter 5 now. In Revelation 4, they're in the presence of God. In Revelation chapter 5, something special begins to take place. In Revelation 5, I find it very, very fascinating, this this whole sequence. In Revelation 5, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. I can't wait to really break this down. Verse 2 says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Now, my friends, I I find this a fascinating concept. Nobody in heaven, that means none of the angels could do it. That means no one living on planet earth could do it. And then when it says under the earth, who lives under the earth? Nobody lives under the earth. There's just dead folks down there. You understand that? All right. So under the earth means that they are dead and buried. So they're looking and even investigating those who who have died. Is there anyone that's died that's worthy to open this book? And they look and they look and they look and there's no one worthy to open this book. Are you following the idea? Now watch. Watch carefully. I I, I find this a fascinating, fascinating passage. It says, verse 4. And I wept much. Now, this is interesting because John doesn't know what's in the book. Why are you crying if you don't know what's in the book? Clearly, the Spirit of God has impressed upon him the weight of the importance of what this book is about. Are you following the idea? All right, here we go. Stay with me. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. What has he done, my friends? Now, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's that? Come on now. Jesus. He has prevailed to open the book. What does it say? He has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, I've taken to a certain point. Now, I want to go backwards in time with you for a moment. On planet Earth, because right now you're in heaven. Like this passage, we're in heaven. I want to take you out of heaven. I'm going to bring you back to Earth. Okay? We're all back on Earth. Jesus has died. His disciples are weeping and they're crying. They thought for sure Jesus was the Messiah, but clearly he's, he's messed up. But then something special happens. What, what happens, my friends? What happens? Does Jesus stay in the grave or does he come up? He resurrects. Now, I want you to go with me. Hold your, hold your finger here in Revelation chapter 5. I want you to go with me to the book of Luke at this moment. And I'm taking you from heaven, and I'll take you back to earth, and I'm going to take you back a little bit in time. And Luke, the 24th chapter. Jesus is raised from the dead at this point. He's already walked on the road to Emmaus. And there's something special about to happen as he appears to his disciples. In verse 
number 40. It says, and when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which was written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Now, I thought this was interesting. You know why? Because Jesus didn't say, just look at me, I'm raised from the dead. Jesus says, look at me, I'm raised from the dead, now let's have a Bible study. You see that? Jesus didn't ask him just to believe in the supernatural. He said, let me show you and take you through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let me take you through Psalms, and I'm going to show you me in all of Scripture. I wonder what that Bible study was like. That had to be an amazing study. But watch what else it says in verse 46. And he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, and tell ye be endued with power from where, my friends? Now remember, I'm taking you back. I took you to heaven, I took you out of heaven, and I took you back just a few days before, and I'm showing you Jesus is making a promise. He's saying that there's something special is going to happen to you, and when you receive this promise, you're going to have power. That's what he said. Watch. Now, I want you to go to the book of Acts now. Book of Acts. The book of Acts. And we're going to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're starting in verse 3. Don't you like it when the pages of the Bible turn? It just sounds nice. It sounds really nice. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for, what's it say, my friends? Wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Verse 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive, what's it say? Power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus makes another promise. He says, look, I want you to tarry here. I want you to stay together and wait for the promise. I have to go do something. Wait for the promise. Don't make a move. Don't organize any evangelistic work. Don't go preaching to nobody. I need you to wait for the promise. Everybody follow? Now, remember, I took you from heaven. I took you back a few days. And Jesus is making a proclamation. Wait for the promise. The promise of what, my friends? The promise of what? The Spirit. 
You're in Acts chapter 2 now. In verse number 1. Acts chapter 2, verse number 1. Don't worry, this is one of those sermons that I'm setting you up and you have no idea what's about to happen to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from where, my friends? From heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and set upon each of them, verse 4, and they were all filled with, what's it say? Now, before I go any further, you know, sometimes questions just randomly come to my brain. This one I think I should ask you. Do you think God is a respecter of persons? Like, you know, these guys are up there. They're, they're in fellowship. They're, there's union. There's nothing that's separating them. And, and God says, you know what? I'm going to pour my spirit out on them, and my presence is going to fill them up. Do you think God would not do the same thing for us if we followed the same type of mindset? So, in other words, let me say it differently. If we, as people, truly put aside all of our problems with each other, like if you got, listen, I, you know, I've been in, I, I'm really not part of this, you know, I'm, I'm just coming to, you know, be here for a few months now. I've been hanging out. I mind my business. I really do. I try my best to stay out of people's business. But sometimes when you're just hanging around, stuff comes at you. And you're like, wait, why is that happening? Hey, wait, why is that happening? Wait, wait. And I thought to myself, the saints of God don't really like each other. There are people that have beef with each other. There are people that are hurting and they're hurting by other church people. So God is not a respecter of persons. He wants to pour out the spirit on all his people if they would just make way, make room for him to do what he wants to do. Husband and wife, God would do this in your family, you know. There's, there's beef in the family. So my question, my question is, if he's not a respecter of persons, then what would hinder God from pouring out his spirit tonight? I, I'm just asking, okay? I'm not trying to step on your, actually, I am trying to step on your toes. Amen. <laughs> because at the end of the day, my friends, I, one of the things I don't want, I don't want to be a fake Christian. That's, that's one of the things, I, just, I, re, I rather not even take up the Bible, I rather not preach, I rather take, take off this suit, yo, I got some stuff I could do. Why do this if I can't have it all? Huh? Why do this if I can't have what the Bible is presenting here, that he will pour out his spirit on a group of people that have put aside everything and come into oneness with each other and with him? I'd rather, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. There's other things to do. But the reality is, there has to be a putting away of self and sin amongst us. 
Does that make sense, everybody? All right. Now let's keep, let's keep teaching. I w- in the same chapter now, I want you to jump down to verse number 39. Actually, go to verse 29. Let's start at verse 29. In Acts chapter 2, it says, Men and brethren, and this is, un- now, if you ever want to know what a Holy Ghost-filled sermon content was, this is the, the whole chapter here. Peter is on fire. He's full of the Holy Ghost. Everything he's saying is anointed. Verse 29 says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his sepulchres with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this, wait, wait, let me back up. He would raise up Christ to do what, my friends? Sit on his throne. Don't, don't miss that. He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. It goes on to say, he seeing this before, verse 31, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed for this which ye now see, and what, you, what does it say? Wait, do you, did you get the imagery? It's, it's said that Jesus was raised up, and he sits on the Father's throne. And as he's sitting on the throne, the Father gives him the Spirit, and then Jesus gives the Spirit to his church. This is what the Bible says. Did you see that? All right, now let's take you back to heaven. In heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, Hold your hand in Acts. Don't, don't lose that place. Go back to Revelation chapter 5. In heaven, as Peter is preaching, this is what's happening in heaven. Revelation 5, look at verse 6. It says, and, look, and, and I beheld, watch this, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, And in the midst of the elders stood who, my friends? Now tell me, who's the lamb? So what you're you're seeing is, it's the same thing Peter is saying. Peter is saying, Jesus has ascended, and he's sitting on the right hand of God. What you're seeing here is Jesus has ascended, and he's standing right next to his father on the throne. Are you seeing that? Stay with me. It says, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth where? Wait, 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 wait. You missed it. So the seven lamps are the seven spirits. It just said that the seven eyes are the seven spirits. Did you get that? And tell me, what happened with the seven eyes? They were sent forth where? Sent forth into all the earth. What has just been described to you, my friends, in that passage alone, is that God just poured out his spirit on his people. In fact, I'm going to show you one other thing. Psalms 133. Go to Psalms 133. Psalms 133. 
So on earth, Peter is preaching. In heaven, Jesus is moving. As he's moving, he now pours out his spirit on a body that is waiting to receive his spirit. Psalms 133. Watch this. Watch carefully. The Bible says, Psalms 133, verse number one, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for a brethren to dwell together in, what's it say? Unity. It is like, what is it like? It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, which went down to the skirts of his garments. Pause for a second. Pause, pause, pause. So the Bible's using imagery, right? It's using imagery. It's trying to teach a point. The imagery here is that he starts out by saying, Oh, how good and how pleasant it is that the brethren, the family of God, are in unity. It is like, what is it like? Oil. It's like an anointing. An anointing of who? Aaron. Who's Aaron? He's the high priest. It is like oil. And it's not a little bit of oil. It says it's so much oil that it comes off his face, off of his beard, comes off his skirt, and off his garment. That's not a little drop. It's not like a little... It's a... Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the anointing of the high priest. Y'all not... Are you hearing what I'm saying? So it's like unity amongst the brethren. When the brethren are united, God's spirit is now flowing from the high priest. But it doesn't stop there. Look what the rest of the verse says. It says, verse 3, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, for a moment, you know, there are many scientists in this room, I'm quite sure. Does dew descend? Dew does not descend. This is the wrong translation of the word. What, de- what, what precipitation descends? Rain. Rain descends. So it's like rain that falls upon Zion. What's Zion? What's Zion? That's the church. So look at the imagery. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like oil that anoints the high priest. And as the high priest is anointed above, the church is anointed below. Did you get it or did you miss it? I'm thinking about this now. Processing in my mind. Processing in my mind. If that's the work of the high priest above, and it it actually has, like in real time, Jesus is anointed as high priest in heaven, and as he's anointed as high priest in heaven, the Holy Spirit falls on his disciples below. If that happens in real time, I wonder if there's something that must happen in our day. I wonder if there is something that God is trying to do in our time. You see, prophecy is not just about what people are doing on the planet Earth. Prophecy is about what's going on up in heaven. There is a movement above. And his church below must be in proper position to receive what he's about to drop. And my friends, to be honest with you, I really am not waiting for another tornado, another earthquake, another tsunami, another financial crisis. I'm waiting for a church. I'm waiting for the saints of God to come together. 
That's what we're waiting for. Where love is the reality of the experience of the believers. Where we don't walk into a building and by the very nature of the building itself, it's offensive. Because it's a church. People, people literally walk into this place and sometimes they're just hurt. Because they're remembering how they've been treated. For me, I, I, I'd rather not play a game. I want, I want my man's love. He, he's a hugger. This one right here? This one's a hugger. Huh? This one's a hugger. And, I, I, and, and as fellowship and as believers, we, you know, we learn things about health. Health is not so I can beat you up. Health is so that we can grow together. So let's grow together. Let's grow as a unit, as a body. What would it be like if everybody really loved each other? Huh? See, so what's, what the world's trying to do, they're trying to manufacture it. We need to pass laws so we can take care of the environment. We need to stop people with guns so we can take away their guns. They're passing laws. We need to pass conversion. And as he does that, and he knits our hearts together. See, if I don't see Lionel tomorrow, I'm going to be looking for you, brother. I'm coming to your house. Huh? It's about family. That's what Jesus died for, for his family, for fellowship. He wants you in his presence. He said, behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. How many want that unity? Can I see your hand? Can I see your hand? Praise God. That's 100%. Let's go to our knees. Let's ask God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our Father in heaven, just thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us and chasing us and showing your great passion for us by the sacrifice that you were willing to give. And Father, we can see that you have a plan. This is not by accident that we are all here in this place. It is not by accident, Father, that you are calling us to a union with you and with each other. And Father, the mere fact that we are kneeling, the mere fact that our heads are bowed, it's because we don't want to play church. We want you for real, for real. We want to be changed from the inside out. We see the world going crazy. We see the death and destruction. We see the broken homes. We see the addictions that are there. And Father, I know your heart is burdened, Lord. You don't have enough hands and enough feet. There's so much fighting. So much hatred. So much pain.
Father, help us to feel what you feel. Forgive us, Lord. We have been so selfish with our time, with our money. Please, Lord, save us from ourselves. Our weak, unchristlike selves. Please take our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for salvation. I, I just I just pray, Father, that you put conviction on the hearts of people in this room who hold grudges, who are talking about people behind their backs who are besmirching individuals, Father. I pray that you put conviction on their hearts. Please, Lord. And I pray for a love that passes all understanding. And I pray for the peace of God to rest upon each heart. And we pray this not because we are worthy, for we are far from it, but because your dear son is worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we do claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.